This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 64 through 65:16, and I'm going to read that entire section. Uh, 64 is a short chapter, so it's it's not that long uh, altogether. Uh, we're going to look at this text, Lord willing, this morning. The next week for communion, we're going to take uh, a little bit of a special break and do a quick review of some texts in Isaiah. And then the following week, we're going to finish the book. Then September 15th, start into uh, the book of James, which will be, in terms of biblical literature, James and Isaiah, for a variety of reasons, occupy about uh, polar opposites in, in terms of uh, literary style in terms of content, and so hopefully we'll, we'll feel that. It's going to be a pretty abrupt switch you know, when we come out of Isaiah into James, uh, but Lord willing, we'll be able to benefit uh, from, from both. So Isaiah 64, beginning at verse 1, down to sixty-five, sixteen. this is the Word of God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us when we pray. Or rather, oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, Here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. A people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. 
Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment of their former deeds. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it. So will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. And all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The sovereign Lord will put you to death. But to his servants, he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Lord, we would ask that as we come to your word, that you would, by your spirit, enable us to understand it, that by your spirit we will come to know who you are and who we are, what you require of us, what you would have us to be and to do. And Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to to the claims that you make, to how you treat people, to what you call us out of and what you call us to. And Father, we pray that you will help us to be aware and mindful and, and eager to, to help those who are perishing. 
who stand under your wrath, who forsake you, and to stand ready for destruction. Father, we, we often live in denial about the state of the world and the state of our own hearts. This is one part of your revelation to us. Help us understand it in balance with the rest of what you have revealed. For we ask it in Jesus' name. one begins with what may be uh, a wish for activity in the past tense. That is, it, it may be, oh, that you had rent the heavens and come down. Or, as a lot of the translations have it, a present, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Either way, it's a cry for God to act. God, we want you to be active. We want you to be involved today. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, touch the mountains so that they smoke. This, of course, is sort of uh, elusive to uh, the event at Sinai when God comes down in glory and power and fire and cloud and sets his glory upon the mountains and they tremble. So often, Theophanies, that is the revelation of God, takes place on sort of sacred mountains, and you have sort of a, a concatenation of elements, uh, you know, earthquake, fire, cloud, smoke. And so what, the, what Isaiah is, is praying is, Lord, come down, reveal yourself like you did at Sinai. But you'll recall that when God comes at Sinai, it is not a welcoming place to be. When God shows up at Sinai, it it is not saying, "Come, everyone come and to me. In fact, the, the law is given, if you touch the mountain, you will die. The presence of a holy God with a sinful people brings death. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when the fire consumes the twigs, And causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies. This is not Isaiah asking God to come in the first instance and reveal his great glory and grace to his people. And that's part of it. That's implicit. But here... Isaiah is praying that God will come down, that God will act in a way that all of his enemies will know his name. That's the context which constrains what is a very difficult text. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down to the mountains, trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard. No ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, 
who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Now, this is where you have the twinning of it. That is, this is where you have, when God comes to act, no one has ever seen a God who comes and acts to deliver his people like the Lord God. No one had ever seen in Egypt anyone like God come and deliver his people from slavery. No one had ever experienced the power of the angel of death. No one had ever experienced the sovereign God making decisions of life and death on the basis of substitutionary blood uh, put over the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass by. So God is a God who when he shows up, Sinai, when there's exodus in Sinai, when the mountains tremble, his enemies, that is historically here the Egyptians, they know perfectly well who God is. They learn his name. And so do the other nations. This is why Rahab is willing to work with the Israelites. It's not because they have an overwhelmingly superior military force. It's because even she has heard of the power of God and what he did in Egypt. So when God shows up, he delivers his people. No God is like that. And that is a a thought worth dwelling on except it's not really the point of this text. So it's a little bit illegitimate to to dwell on that at great length when it just sort of smuggled in there as a reminder. There is no God like God. No eye has seen, no ear has perceived. No one knows a God like this who shows up to deliver his people. But when he showed up to deliver the people of Israel, one of the things that we often forget or that we gloss over is that the Egyptians learned the power of God too that night. And the marker the next morning was that there was not a house in Egypt where there was not mourning and wailing and weeping. And Isaiah is saying, God, we need you to show up so that your enemies know who you are to deliver your people. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Now, this becomes sort of a theological thesis kind of like Psalm 73. Psalm 73 begins, surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. And the whole psalm is a litany of how God seems to empirically bless the wicked. Causes a bit of a problem uh, in, in terms of the psalmist's faith until it's resolved in the end. You come to help those, uh, help, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. So this is your theological thesis, but there's a problem with this. And the problem is, but we continue to sin against them, that is against your ways, and you were angry. How then can we be saved? See, this is, this is an issue. If God acts to deliver his people, if God is the one who acts to help those who do what is right, and no one does what is right, then who is going to be saved? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is no one. In fact, not only have we not done what is right, all of us have become like one who is unclean. This is a legal cultic term from from the old covenant law. So now we can't be in the presence of God. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. This is where, uh, again, and just so you know, um, over and over and over and over again, particularly in the prophets, 
every one of our, of our you know, English translations uh, smooths out the vulgarity of what's being said time and time and time again, particularly in Ezekiel. But here's one of those, here's one of those texts. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. It's literally all of our righteous acts are like garments of the times, which is based on a, a woman's monthly cycle, her time of the month. What you're literally being told is that your righteous things, not the wicked things you've done, but the righteous things you've done in God's sight are like a used menstrual cloth. That's your righteousness. Now, you will recall in the law that when a woman was having her period, she was rendered ceremonially unclean during that time. And so this is not merely something which is supposed to be gross. It's something which is actually saying, even your righteousness cannot be presented to God. Even your righteousness is unclean in God's sight. Not, not, not just sort of disgusting, but actually morally, spiritually unclean. Now, if God shows up to judge the unrighteous and to deliver those who are good, and there's no one good, and even what we do that's righteous is like a menstrual cloth, like a a used menstrual garment, then how then can we be saved? We all shrivel up like a leaf, like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and hear this, and have given us over to our sins. One of the worst judgments that comes up in different places in Scripture, categorically and universally in Romans 1, is that oftentimes when people want to sin, God just allows them to. He gives them over to it. He gives them over to their sin. And no one repents. No one calls on God's name or strives to lay hold of him. That does not mean people don't say prayers. That does not mean there aren't religious gatherings. Israel was filled with religious gatherings. The Pharisees prayed. But no one is actually trying to lay hold of God. Yet despite this, The only hope is that the Lord is our Father. Isaiah says, I look around. I look at our righteousness. I look at our worship. I look at everything we are and all that we do. God, there is no hope in us at all. But there may be hope for us in our relationship with you. God, we are unworthy, but you are our Father. Do not forsake us. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. God, we only exist because of you. Only you can shape us into something better. Oh, only you can work in us spiritually to make us what we ought to be. Only you can refine us. Oh, only you can sort of smooth out those rough edges. Only you can make us useful. And not only that, there's even a deeper level here. 
where we are the clay, is, 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 that's almost literally true. Formed out of the dust of the ground. And so it's a reminder, God, we only exist because of you. We are just clay in your hands. Our existence is in your hands. Make us into something good. Because on our own, we can't, we're not self-forming. We can't make ourselves perfect in your sight. We can't make ourselves clean. We can't make ourselves righteous. We don't even have the ability to call on you properly. But you're our Father. You're our only hope. We're just clay. Use your hands to form us into something which pleases you. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. This is, this is literally fulfilled when the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and destroy the city and, and burn the temple after looting it. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? After all of this time, after all of these decades of prophetic ministry, this is where Isaiah ends up. Remember his commission in Isaiah 6, after seeing God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah cries out, woe to me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flies to the altar, takes a coal with tongs, comes over and presses it against Isaiah's lips. See, this coal has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then God in, in Trinitarian counsel, whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? Isaiah having just had a life-and-death experience. Here am I. Send me. Go and tell these people. Be ever perceiving but never understanding. Go and make their eyes blind. Go and make their ears deaf. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, turn, and I would heal them. For how long, Lord? Till the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. And even when a tenth remains, I will lay it waste again. And that's what Isaiah has experienced. Decade 
after decade after decade because he has a long tenure as a prophet. And now he sees with prophetic foresight the final climactic moment when Jerusalem is destroyed because of its wickedness and the temple itself pillaged, looted, and burned. Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? That's the cry of Isaiah's heart. And then God speaks. In chapter 65, this is the response. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Now, this would be the Gentile nations. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held up my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. So what God does now is he's, listen, you want me to come down? You want me to reveal my name to, to, your, to you and to my enemies and to your enemies? I already have. All day long, I've been holding out my arms to everyone. Remember Isaiah 55, come to the waters. You have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, have, have bread without money, wine without cost. Why spend your money on things that do not satisfy? Come and eat. I'll give you what is good. Come to me and find life. God's saying, I've been holding out my hands all day. Year after year after year. I've been the one crying out, here am I, here am I. I've been holding out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, who've, who've used their imagination to invent new religions, new concepts of who I am. I've revealed myself in their very being. They bear my image. I've revealed myself in the creation and general revelation. I've revealed myself you know, through climatic events in world history. I've revealed myself verbally through the prophetic word, and still they don't come. They continually provoke me to my very face. They have their sacred pagan gardens that they offer sacrifices in. They burn incense on altars that I don't want. They sit among the graves. There's all the, next, uh, all the rest of the, the imagery is, is of being unclean. And yet, they have the, the temerity to think that they're too holy even for me. It's like smoke in my nostrils. I'm not sure if you've noticed that it's a somehow, and I, I, and I don't understand, I'm not, I'm not a great scientist at all. So I don't understand the physics of this. But when you build a campfire, no matter where you stand, the smoke follows you. I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if you've noticed that. It is, it, it, and you can watch the smoke move in one direction for 10 or 15 minutes as you're seated there, and decide, I am now going to move over here where the smoke has not ever been blowing. And as soon as you move, it just follows you. I, I don't know why that is, but it does. And here God is saying, and you know what that's like, have smoke blowing in your face. God is saying, that's what the people are like. They're, they're, they're smoking my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. 
See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord. That is, a day of reckoning is coming when all the accounts will be settled. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment of their former deeds. Now, what God is saying is this. Listen, I am not punishing anyone beyond measure. But if I decide to measure into their laps the full payment of what they have done, it's just. But what do you do with justice when there's no one who's good? How then can we be saved? This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it, so will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. There is mercy in the judgment. I will not destroy them all, even though destruction is coming and they deserve it. This is just tough. Unless we're going to deny any kind of current of sympathy or empathy, this is just really hard. It doesn't mean that it's not just. These are people. And and the text is very clear that there will be people who are destroyed. And these are people who who had friends and who had jobs. Probably had some some good times, had loved ones. God says, listen, if I could just find a little bit of juice, just a little bit of blessing, I'll preserve it. And I'll bless them. I'll bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains, my chosen people will inherit them. There will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Acor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. There is blessing for those who seek the Lord. There is. But that's not the force of this text. That's just a parenthetical reminder. Because the focus has been on the enemies of God knowing his name. And that's the theme that's picked up immediately again. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny. Verse 12 actually has a couple play on words with, with fortune and destiny. I will destine you for the sword and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Now, as human beings, 
our capacity is very limited to absorb very much. And so we are very good, almost as a necessary survival instinct, but one which rationality should try to overcome a little bit. We don't have much of a problem as Canadians with the fact that um, through simple, through, through deprivation of simple things like basic medicine, clean water, and adequate nutritious food, things that would cost a dollar or two a day, there are tens of thousands of people who die every day in this world because they don't have access to those things. While we spend thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year on things that are totally unnecessary. And that doesn't bother us. And, and, and if it does, we're just very good at, at moving on. Just, just table it. Feel, feel slightly guilty for a moment, and then you're off to something else. As long as it's out of sight, it can be out of mind. One would, would almost think that there are undercurrents of racism in it as well. As long as it's people who speak a different language, different skin color, we can shield ourselves a little bit from responsibility for being involved in aid. One would maybe suspect that's the case. As long as it's far enough away, in space, the other side of the world, it's not happening in our neighborhood, so we can, we can sort of exempt ourselves from responsibility. We do the same thing with time. So somehow, provided people were destined for the sort a couple thousand years ago, that has almost zero impact on us. Except for, for those people, that was their present. They were as vibrant and as alive as we are today with all the interweb of connections that we have in terms of relationships. So what if Isaiah said this today? What if Isaiah showed up today and said, just so you know, this city, a year from now, it's going to be a desolate wasteland. Yes, there will be some who will be preserved. But I am destining wealth for destruction and ruin. And the bodies of your co-workers will be heaped up in slay and piles. And the churches will be burned to the ground. There might be slightly more impact there. But that's precisely what Isaiah was saying to real people in his day. Human beings are not more valuable now than they were 3,000 years ago. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. 
My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. That's utter emotional and psychological disintegration. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. In other words, when people want to pronounce a curse, they'll say, may you, may you end up like so-and-so. Your name will be used in the curse. The sovereign Lord will put you to death. There's just no way to gloss that. There's just no way to take that seriously and, and, and pretend that it's, it's okay. As if it's inconsequential somehow. The Sovereign Lord will put you to death. But to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten. And hidden from my eyes. In the end, after God shows up, chapter 42, verse 1, and makes his name known to his enemies, there will be suffering, there will be death, but eventually there will be a place where everyone who lives will live in righteousness and call in the name of God. And all of the past times, all of the heartache, all of the ruin, all of the pain, it will be forgotten. Which I don't think means you'll be unaware of it. I don't think it means that there's going to be a, a memory scrub and you're going to have amnesia but I think it means that all of those memories will lose their power over you. Because somehow out of all of this, God is bringing a world that's good. Somehow out of all of this, God's bringing a world that's worth living in. Where everyone will swear by his name. All the trouble will be gone. All the pain will be over. I think that's probably why you're supposed to have a longer attention span and keep reading to the end of the book. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. The sound of weeping and crying is heard in it no more. Why? Because it's this, but why is it no more? It's no more because of what God has done, but it's also no more because this world is a world of weeping and wailing. 
And so when, finally, when God finally puts it all to right, now that's gone. The weeping and wailing is gone. You don't weep and wail anymore, but you do now. And I'll tell you, one of the marks of our lack of spiritual health in our evangelical Western churches is that we don't mourn for the lost in the world. I don't know if it's because we've, we've, we've decided that we'll have a canon within a canon. I don't know if it's because we've just decided that we will only, you know, read the text that we like. That, that we'll, only, we'll only sort of focus on what makes us feel good. Or if it's because we're so grotesquely self-centered that as long as we're okay, Oh, let, let the nations fall to the sword. As long as, as, long as, we're, as, long as we're safe, let, let the world be damned. Now it's time to it's time to either take what God is and what he reveals seriously from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, or it's time to close up shop and go home. But if this is real, people of God, doesn't it call for some kind of action? Like to, to do something? To, to try to make a difference in this world? Like, like maybe, maybe just starts, maybe the, maybe the first thing that we need to do is just, just acknowledge God that we don't care. Like maybe, that's just, maybe that's where it starts. God, the truth is, I don't care. I, I, you know, I, I, I care more about the raptors than I do about, about the lost. Maybe we shouldn't just say that. If it's true, God, God, I, I care more about my money and my retirement and my cruises than I care about the loss. Maybe we need to say it. I say, God, but don't be angry beyond measure. You're the potter. Please start shaping me. And the kind of person who can actually make a difference in this world. Help me to see. Give me eyes to see you, eyes to see myself, and eyes to see others. Help us. Help us to care. Then help us to be wise and to go out and to actually engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not be okay that my servants will eat, my servants will drink, my servants will rejoice, my servants will sing. Let's not be so self-focused and so selfish and self-centered that that's all we care about when there are others who go hungry, others who go thirsty, others who are put to shame, and others who have anguish of heart and who wail in brokenness of spirit. I almost feel apologetic that I don't have, like, a happy conclusion 
to, to package you all off with a nice pat on the back. But I don't. Because I think this message is tough. I think this text has hard lines and calls us to something more. But I will say this. You do realize that every one of us is actually in the camp of those whose righteousness are like menstrual cloths in the sight of God. That's all of us. The question still demands an answer. How then can we be saved? And if you've been working through Isaiah carefully, you know that every single one, every single one of the people on earth deserve death for what they are and what they've done. Every single sinner will die for their sin. The question is this. Will they suffer for what they have done in their own death? Or will they receive the death of someone else in their place? Because in Isaiah 53... The servant of the Lord was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. In other words, before you get here, you already have very clearly taught the idea of substitutionary atonement, that there will be someone who is willing to take your sin upon himself and die in your place. That is, he will bear your hunger, he will bear your thirst, he will bear your shame, he will bear your anguish and brokenness. And that's the only way that you can be saved. It's not about you all of a sudden deciding to pull up your bootstraps and you're just going to be a better person morally. Your righteousness is the problem, not the solution. But make no mistake. There is death for every sinner. Every single one. And they will either die for their own sin or they'll be sheltered and united to the substitutionary atonement provided by the servant of the Lord who died for their sin in their place. But the life of every sinner brings death, either their own or the death of Christ on their behalf. And that is where you can actually get to a happy resolution. Because the death of Christ isn't the last word. The resurrection is. Thank God. And then a new heavens and new earth. I'm just asking you to take a moment to pray. Then I'll lead us in prayer. Then our musicians will come and lead us in our song. Father, I don't know if, if we really have the courage to pray, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
touch the mountains so that they smoke, so that your enemies may know your name. You are God. Humble us before you. Help us to weigh things in the balance and proportion of who you are and not who we are. And God, thank you for the atonement of Christ, that the servant of the Lord was willing to die in our place that we might be saved. But God, forgive us our apathy for those who are lost. Forgive us for the way that we deny it, the way that we ignore it, the way that we excuse ourselves from doing something to try to reach the world. Help us. Help us. You are our Father. You are the potter. We are the clay in your hands. Please find some good juice in us. May there still be some blessing here. Mobilize us to be better than we've been before and to do more than we've done before. May our church, may our church be a church that's filled by your spirit, wielding the sword of your word, and actually loving our neighbor as ourself. For we ask it in Jesus' name.